one verse uh, in Mark 3, and, and you, won't, you don't have to turn to the other ones. I'll just read them. They're, they're verses you've all heard before, so you, you know I'll tell you where they are, and, and I'll read them to you. But the first one is in Mark 3, 14. It says this. It says that he ordained 12 that they should be with him. And I don't want to go any further than that in that verse. He ordained 12 that they should be with him. The reason that he ordained them, the reason that he called them, um, is that he wanted them with him. The second one is Matthew chapter 11, uh, verse 28, a verse that we uh, spoke on a few weeks ago. It says that, uh, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. A familiar verse. Also, John chapter 8, verse 31, it says that Jesus then said to those Jews that believed on him, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples, my followers, indeed, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you what? Free. Free. And then finally, uh, last verse fits with the others, Galatians chapter 5. Uh, the first few verses of the passage, it says, Stand fast, therefore, or hold your ground in the freedom. So he says that you'll be my disciples, you will be made free. And then he says, Hold your ground in the freedom wherewith Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. So we heard that Jesus gives us a yoke, and he said to take it. So he, there's a yoke that he wants us to have that he says is easy and that is a light burden. And now Paul is talking about a different yoke here. And so Jesus sets us free with a yoke, which kind of seems ironic or contradictory, but it's not. Um, and now Paul says, stay, hold on to that freedom. Don't let anybody take that freedom away from you. And do not be again entangled with the yoke that was once removed. That's what Paul is saying here. Do not be again entangled with the yoke of bondage. And then he describes what that yoke was. He says, Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if you are circumcised, that is, uh, that's, a, that's kind of a, a one-word summary for the law. If you, again, are brought under the covenant of the law, then Christ, Jesus, what Jesus did for you, will profit you nothing. And so essentially what he's saying there by, by using that word circumcision is he's talking about religion, religious customs, the law, versus Christ. And he's, he's, he's drawing a contrast between the two. And he says that if you become religious, then Christ will profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised, that is religious, that is, uh, you know, into religion, religious customs and the law, that he is indebted to keep the entire law. And Christ is become of no effect unto you, whosoever you are, that are justified by law. So in other words, if you take the yoke of religion, then that yoke of religion is your obligation, and Christ profits you nothing, he says, for you are fallen from grace. So he sets this contrast here. So if we put those verses all together, essentially what we have is we have Jesus saying that he ordained 12 that they should be with him. There's relationship. Relationship with Jesus. Then he says, take my yoke upon you and be free. 
John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. And then Paul says, don't be entangled again with the yoke of bondage of the law of religion, but rather hold your ground in the freedom of the relationship that you have in Jesus Christ. That's the, uh, the summation of those four passages all put together. And so as we come to uh, Mark's gospel and we look at um, what Jesus has to say to us this morning, um, there, there, the, you know, I want to begin by, by just saying that um, oftentimes when I make my notes or when I put together a study and I'm outlining and putting things together, I have abbreviations that I use. You know, I'll tape my cliff notes and my, my I call them lily pads, you know, things that I, you know, that keep me on track and I tape them into my uh, Bible, you know, so that I have a reference. And oftentimes I have to abbreviate long words just so that things will fit. And there's two words that I abbreviate the exact same way. And they are religion and relationship because they both start with R-E-L, you know? So, so they get abbreviated and they get put in my notes the same way. And oftentimes, if I'm having a cloudy day, and I'm, I don't know if I'm the only one that ever has a cloudy day, <laughs> you know, I'll look at it and I can confuse the two and I can wonder which one of the two I mean to say in this particular instance. And then usually context will define that for me. You know, but I find it ironic that it, 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 it's easy to confuse the abbreviation of those two words. It's also too easy to it, confuse the experience of those two words or the reality of those two words. They're easy to confuse, and yet they're worlds apart in their meaning. Now, the word religion means, it comes from a Latin word, it means to relink or to reconnect. And so the concept or the idea is that man is separated from God and that religion is a means of relinking or reconnecting man with God. The problem with it, with the definition of that word, is not what it implies, because certainly we want to reconnect with God, but rather the means or the way that religion goes about bridging that gap or making that connection. And so what religion does is that religion reconnects through policy. That is, there are principles that if I employ them, refine them, and perfect them, religion promises me that somehow I'll reach God. So there are principles, practiced, employed, refined, and perfected, that promise to bring me close to God. And I don't know if you've ever tried it, but it's impossible to reach God or connect with God through religion. Because there's not enough policy, there's not enough refinement or perfection that could ever bridge that gap. Now, relationship, on the other hand, is different than religion. Because what relationship is, relationship is not a reconnection. Relationship is a connection that happens through intimacy. It's not principles that are practiced, employed, refined, and perfected. But rather, it's an experience of interaction of encountering and a blending of personalities. And so we understand the concept of relationship. We interact with one another, we get to know each other, we connect with one another, and then we grow in our relationship to one another. And so, uh, so we understand that this dynamic, the difference between religion and relationship. Uh, C.S. Lewis in The Four Loves, he wrote you know, many books, beloved author, and he describes the four different types of uh, relationships that we are, are capable of having. 
And uh, one of those loves that he talks about is a friendship or storge, like just the just kind of a, a love like we would have, like a brotherhood kind of a love. And uh, he, he describes a scene in, in that, a personal account from his own life, where there was a circle of three friends, himself and then two of his friends. And he describes how one of them died and what that experience, uh, how that experience affected him. And, 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 as he, and as he was thinking through and grieving and mourning the loss of his friend, one of the things that he realized was that, that the, the, the thing that he loved about this man that died is that this man's personality, when blending with his own, brought things out in him that no one else was able to bring out in him. And thus he realized that when his friend died, a part of him died too. And that it changed the entire dynamic of that circle of three friends because the interaction between the three of them enlivened parts of all of them that would no longer uh, be there. And I love the way he just says it. I just read you one uh, quote from that um, testimony. He says this. He says, in each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. Hence, true friendship is the least jealous of loves. Two friends delight to be joined by a third and three by a fourth if only the newcomer is qualified to become a real friend. They can then say, as the blessed souls say in Dante, here comes one who will augment our loves, for in this love to divide is not to take away. And, and all that to say is that when there's a relationship that you have with another person, there are qualities that are extracted from you that lie dormant or dead take away that relationship. People bring those things out inside of us. And so relationships, we understand, are unique and they're individual. You and I can have a relationship with the same person and yet the dynamic of that relationship can be completely different. Your relationship with person X is different than my relationship with person X because the blending of personalities changes the dynamic. I remember when I first met my wife, Georgia, we were high school sweethearts. And I took a liking to her right away for the common reason that men usually do. <laughs> you know, she was hot. <laughs> and uh, and she, she was the piano player, the accompanist in, um, in chorus. We were both musicians in that season. And now we're just parents. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but, uh, but she was the piano player, and I, along with everyone else, took a notice to the woman in the front of the room um, that was our age, you know, and, and all. And, uh, and so, you know, I was kind of a clown at that season of my life, and so I began just kind of uh, flirting with her in subtle ways. You know, I would walk by, and I would take her hairband out of her hair, and then I'd put it around my wrist and just walk away, you know, in kind of a bold thing. And, and, and we kind of established a rapport and a friendship, and, and then the relationship relationship kind of developed from there and we really hit it off and, uh, and, and it was awesome. You know, we just had a really good thing just between the two of us. And, um, and, and I can just imagine, you know, we had a dynamic, we had a relationship and I can imagine that if her mother were to come to me during that season of time and she were to say to me, she says, can we just talk for a minute? I say, yeah, sure. Of course. What is it? And she would say, well, you know, I noticed that you're getting really close to my daughter. 
And, you know, I'm really happy for, for her and for you. And I see something in her that I've never seen before, you know, that obviously you're bringing out in her. But my problem is this, is that as you and her grow closer and closer, I'm noticing that me and her are growing more distant and that I'm not able to talk to her the way that I once was and that she's not as open with me as she once was. And I find that there's a distancing in our relationship. And, and being that you are very successful at getting through with her, I was wondering if maybe you might just counsel me as to how I can get close to my daughter again, because I want to have a, a good relationship with my daughter. Now, if I were to say to my wife's mother in that circumstance, well, I know exactly what you should do. When you walk by her, steal her hairband. <laughs> you know? And if you, if you can, squirt her with a squirt gun. That seemed to really work, you know, at a random time while she's sitting at a computer, you know, or doing something, you know. I said, try some of these little things, like, you, you know, and see how you make out. Now, I can only imagine my mother-in-law, first of all, even saying those things to me, but then doing those things. It, it sounds absurd. Why? Because there's a different dynamic in the relationship that she has with Georgia versus the dynamic of the relationship that I have with her because we're different people. And so for us to think that we can both have the same dynamic is absurd. It's not relational. Now, if you carry this into the context of our relationship with God, it illustrates the point amazingly. See, what religion does is religion employs principles that may work in a certain dynamic or a certain setting, and it tries to apply them universally. Okay, so if you were to say, Nick, you have a relationship with God, and that relationship with God brings things out in you that are amazing, and I want to have a relationship with God, what should I do? Now, the best that I can do is I can describe to you the dynamics of my relationship with God. And if you try to employ those exact same principles, you are religiously trying to have a relationship with God. And you'll say, I tried that and it didn't work. And you'll say, well, God must not be real. No, 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 it doesn't work that way. We are all individual, we're all unique, and what God wants with each of us is he wants a relationship with each of us. And that relationship is going to carry on different dynamics. It's going to have different things according to who we are, and that's what God wants with us. Now, anytime there's a genuine anything, genuine money, genuine you know, chocolate, genuine anything, there is also a counterfeit or the potential for a counterfeit. And so what religion becomes is a counterfeit of a real relationship. And it can happen. The outward motions that mimic an inward reality. And every genuine relationship has externals. There are sincere expressions of relationship that happen when people interact or when a man interacts with God or a person interacts with God. And when those things become mechanical, they are then called tradition. And when tradition gains traction, it becomes religion. These are the rules. This is how it is done. And free expression becomes choreography. And that's what religion is defined at. Now, when God gave the law in the Old Testament through Moses, 
And when he gave the rituals that were then uh, performed by the priests and in the, in the offerings and at the various times of the year, God had two very important reasons for doing that. He gave the law and he gave the rituals, not for the purpose of giving relationship, because relationship can't come through those things. But he gave those things, first of all, so that man would know who God is. See, the Bible tells us that God created man in his image. But man wants to create God in man's image. It's a tendency of human nature. And so it's my nature to want to make God who I want him to be. The problem is God isn't who I want him to be. God is God. And God tells me who he is. And so God gave the law in part so that we would know who he is, that he's ordered, that he is the king over a government that is a government of order, that he's holy, that he's powerful. He wants us to know who he is and how he is, and thus he gave us the law. He's ordered, organized, intentional, and he is defined. He is God. He also gave those things to reveal to man his sinfulness and his need. He gave the law so that we would understand that we're fallen and that we're separated from God, that we're not born into a relationship with him. And he wants us to know his government, who he is, and he wants us to know right and wrong. Now, here's the error that man made in the Old Testament. The error was thinking that in keeping the law, and in performing the rituals, that that is having a relationship with God. And it's not. It's not having a relationship with God. They kept the rituals. They obeyed the laws, at least to the best of their ability. But yet they had no relationship with God. There was an ever-widening gap between the things that they were doing and the God that they were knowing or the relationship and what they were experiencing. I remember when we went to Israel, Georgia and I went back in like 2006. It was a while ago now. And our tour guide uh, made a comment that I'll never forget. He was talking about the two major cities in Israel. Tel Aviv, which is the capital, was at that time the capital, is kind of, you know, and Jerusalem, which is the spiritual hub, the spiritual capital. And he said these words. He said that Jerusalem is where we go to pray and Tel Aviv is where we go to play. And I thought, well, isn't that telling? You know, that's exactly, that defines religious Judaism. It defines even religious Christianity, is that there's this chasm that exists between what I profess and what I do and what I want to be and what I am in secret, or what my affections are, what my real relationship with God is. And that's what the law, the Old Testament, produced. And so just a, a quick history. After Moses gave the law and there was a definite interaction between God and his people, there was a distancing as time went by. You get into the period of the judges, into the period of the kings. There were some ups and downs, you know, David and all that. But the, the, the overall trajectory was that the people were more and more distanced from God, even though they had the law and the rituals and the temple and they were keeping those things. They didn't have a relationship with God. They just had religion with God. And it got so bad to the point where God said, you don't know me so much that I actually have to remove you from the land and wipe out all of your religious 
you know, icons and things so that you can realize how messed up you are. And he did it. They went to Babylon. They were slaves there for 70 years. And then God brought them back and they rebuilt the temple and God again visited his people and he established relationship. It's Nehemiah chapter eight. You can read it. It was powerful. There was an outpouring of God's spirit. There was a reading of the word. There was a softening of the heart. There was a receiving of his person and of his grace. There was genuine joy and expression and freshness and reality and depth. It was powerful what happened in that time. But out of that revival, after the captivity, there was birthed a sect of people that were called the Pharisees. 6,000 men, and the purpose of that group, the Pharisees, was to be, in a sense, the moral Marine Corps. And they, they defined what it means to be a Jew and what it means to be devoted to God. And they were the enforcement agents that made sure that the nation was sticking to the letter of the code so that they would never again have the problem that they had before they went into captivity. Do you see religion? <laughs> Do you see what it does? And so, oh, we've got this figured out. We've got the sect of the Pharisees, the pastors and priests and spiritual leaders, they're going to keep us on track. And so they began now resting in their rituals and their religion, their practices, and the chasm began to develop again. Relationship morphed into religion, into devotions, into rites, sacrifices, and the people did not have a relationship with God. Now, into that scene, God the author of this relationship steps in. Jesus comes in. And he's God. He's the undercover boss on steroids. <laughs> you know? The author of the whole system comes into the system clothed as a carpenter. And the God who wanted relationship with his people interjects himself now into this religious system that has become so estranged from a relationship that they don't even recognize the one that they're claiming to serve. That's the scene that Jesus comes into uh, when he comes. And then he begins his ministry, which is contextually where we are as we kind of look at this whole thing of becoming disciples. And Jesus calls the initial 12. And then what Jesus does is he interjects, or, yeah, interjects himself into this religious system and he confuses it. He causes the check engine light to come on because he... And what he actually wants is so contrary to what they are and what they're doing that they don't even recognize him. He's just different than what they are. So God steps in. Now, in this segment of the Gospel of Mark, and I know that was a long introduction, but we'll move through this quickly. I want to show you five interactions that happen successively between Jesus and the people he came to relate with wherein there was a big difference between their religion and the relationship. Five areas where they missed it, and listen, there are five areas where we can miss it. There are five areas where we can substitute religion for relationship. We can lose the thing that God wants us to have for us to be with him, for us to be made free, 
for us to hold on to the liberty of freedom in relationship with him. And we can trade that away for the cheap substitute of choreographed religion. And so what are they? Jesus comes in, and if you're, if you're in Mark's gospel, in chapter 2, and I'm not going to read you the passage because it would take uh, a, a long time, and I know I would get sidetracked uh, in, in the details because that's what happens to me. You know, um, but in the first 12 verses of Mark chapter 2, there's the classic passage where four friends bring their crippled friend to Jesus and they have to break through the roof in order to get him. Do you guys know the story? Jesus is in the house teaching and the crowd is so uh, thick that they have their sick friend and there's no room to get him to where Jesus is. He's in a bed, he's crippled. And so what they do is they hoist him up on the roof. They literally ruin the roof of someone's house because they're that sure that Jesus is going to heal this man. And they're that compassionate to this man's need that they're willing to embarrass themselves and risk it all like they did. So they tear through the roof. They lower their friend down in front of Jesus. And when Jesus sees it, it says that he saw their faith. And that's important. He saw their faith. It says that he said to the man, arise, take up your bed. No, first actually he said, your sins are forgiven you. That's what he said. Your sins are forgiven. And the religious people, the Pharisees, the Marine Corps, they said, who is this man to themselves that, that, that can forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. And when Jesus realized that that's what they were thinking, Jesus looked right at them directly. And he said, what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk? Now, that's kind of a trick question. If you think about it, I'll let you wrestle with that. Which is an easier question and why? Spiritually, physically, hum humanly, divinely, which is easier to say? But then he says this. He says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. He looked at the sick man and he said, take up your bed, rise up and walk. And it says immediately the man was made whole. And the outcome of the whole thing is it says that they were amazed and they glorified God. Okay, so here's what happens in the scene. Jesus comes in, there's a mix of nobodies and religious people and a sick person. And Jesus violates, listen, he violates their religious tradition. The religious tradition was that God forgives sin according to the sacrificial system. That's the code. That's the law. That's the letter. God forgives sin when you bring an offering. Jesus violated that code by seeing faith, skipping the sacrifice, and declaring forgiveness. Now, what their error was, the religious people, their error is that they thought that forgiveness happens when the ritual of sacrifice is performed by the priest. Actuality is that sin is forgiven by God when he sees faith in the heart. Righteousness was imputed to Abraham through what? Faith. You are justified by grace through what? Faith. Faith is what forgives sins, okay? The sacrifice was an act that demonstrated faith in what God said and what God would provide. That means that when Jesus saw faith, it was sufficient 
to skip the sacrifice and sin could be forgiven. That was the actuality. And thus, Jesus interjects himself into this whole thing, and he forgives this man based upon his faith. Jesus saw the faith, and the outcome is that the healing came, the people were amazed, they glorified God, and they were given hope. So what do we learn from this about a relationship with God versus the religious ritual? First of all, listen, guys, this applies to you and I is that God does not want you and I to jump through hoops or break through roofs in order to be in a relationship with him. We do not have to perform rituals, rites, ceremonial things in order to be in a relationship with him. It starts with and it continues with faith. That's where the relationship is. I love the fact, and I know this is maybe stretching a little bit. I love the fact that this crippled man was brought into Jesus' presence from the roof down and not from the room up. Because to me, it's a great picture of someone not able to get to Jesus through the throng, but they get to him when the roof is broken up. It comes from heaven to earth. The top, from the top down, the roof is opened up. It's, it's a great picture for me to, to realize that God is the one who initiates relationship. It's not up to me to break through the roof. It's not up to me to get to Jesus through what I can manipulate him with. It's faith. It's simple. And so we learn from this first thing. The second uh, thing happens right after. If you look over in Mark chapter 2, in verse 16, Right after he calls, or verse 15, he calls Matthew to follow him. And it says, I'll read these because it's so short. It says that it came to pass that as Jesus sat to eat in his house, in Matthew's house, many publicans and sinners sat also together with Jesus and his disciples. And there were many, for they followed him. And there were scribes and Pharisees, religious people. And they saw him eat with publicans and sinners, and they said unto his disciples, How is it that he eats and drinks with publicans and with sinners? The second interaction here is it deals with who God chooses to associate with. The kind of people God wants to have a relationship with. So the first one, the first uh, interaction dealt with the forgiveness of sins how relationship forgives sins. This one is how relationship chooses to associate with us, how God chooses to associate. Here's the question. Jesus, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why do you have the most intimate form of interaction and fellowship with someone who is a sinner and someone who is a rebel against you? Why do you do that? That's the question. Here's the violation. The violation that Jesus is committing here against the moral Marine Corps of his day is that he's initiating a relationship with rebellious non-seekers. Do you know who the tax collectors were? The tax collectors were Jews that had had it with the religious system. To be a tax collector was essentially to, you know, yeah, go against the Jewish system because they were paying taxes to Rome and the Jews hated the Romans. And so if you were a Jew and you became a tax collector, it was because you said, eh, I've had enough. I don't want your religion. I don't want your God. I'll just work for the Romans. A sinner 
with someone who just said, I'm going to do what I want and I don't care what the moral enforcement code or the culture says that I have to do. And, and Jesus violated the moral principle by going and eating and interacting and fellowshipping with these guys. The tradition was that these people are to be thrown out. These are the castaways. They're disqualified. They're shunned. They're no longer a part of our society. Now, here's their error. Here was their mistake. Their mistake was that they thought that God hated sinners, that God didn't want anything to do, no interest. He doesn't care about those that are on the margins. Jesus violated that by initiating relationship and by welcoming those people and meeting them where they were at. Now, catch this. Jesus did not excuse the sin. He acknowledged that they were sinners. Because his reply to them in verse 17, if you look at it, it says that when Jesus heard it, he said to them, they that are whole have no need of a physician, but they that are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So Jesus didn't say, well, they're not sinners. You guys are messed up because you're judging them. No, Jesus acknowledged the fact that these people absolutely were sinners. But what he did is that he crossed into their world, their culture, and their setting in order to initiate a relationship that ultimately would bring them out of the circumstance and the situation that they were in. Now, what does Jesus show you and I in this? What does he show in this? What he shows is that sin in a person's life, and catch this, sin in a person's life is a sign that there is a need that is unmet. He says that by saying, they that are whole have no need of a physician, but they that are sick. In other words, if someone is living a sinful lifestyle apart from God, the reason that they're sinning is because they're trying to meet a need that they have inside that has gone unmet. And the implication is that if they would get into a right relationship with God, the need that they're trying to meet with things that can't meet that need would be met by the connection that they're seeking to have ultimately with God relationship with God meets the need that sin promises to satisfy, but it can't. Do you know why people get trapped up in looking at pornography? It's because they're seeking to connect. They're looking for connection. Why do people look at porn and not anatomy textbooks? Because porn is designed specifically to cause, to make it look like the women want interaction with the people that are looking at those pictures. They're seeking to connect. They're longing for a connection. And, and, and what they're trying to satisfy is something that's not being met or in their connection with God. And so they're looking for it someone else. The problem is it can't satisfy because it's not a real connection. It's not the connection that we're ultimately seeking to have. The need went unmet. Thus, many burned scorned by religion, found out in this interaction that God is not the author of religion, but rather a relationship with him is personal and worthwhile. See, these sinners, these tax collectors, they said, I don't need your God. And what God is showing, what the Bible is showing us here is that they, they do need God and they want God. And that God isn't what they thought God was because what they were disattracted to was religion. 
not Jesus. See, these people wanted Jesus. What does this teach us? What do we learn in this about having a relationship with God? Listen, we learn first of all and foremost, and this is for us, this is important, is that God does not wait for us to clean up our act first before he will initiate relationship with us. I remember someone said to me one time, you can't clean a fish before you catch it, right? You know, you can't fillet it until you catch it. And so we don't go in the water and say, I don't want that fish. It's not filleted yet. You know, and it's the same thing. It's like we're, we all are sinful, wretched people, and God meets us right where we are. And as that relationship with Him grows and the needs are met, He changes us from the inside out. He doesn't wait for us to clean up our act. We also learn from this that we are not to shun or disassociate or exclude sinners from our lives because of what they're doing. Because the reason people are sinning is because they have a legitimate need that they're trying to fill with sinful behavior. We have the answer for what that is. And if we exclude them and push them to the margins and say that they're not worth anything because they're sinning or they're sinners, then we fail to bring them the very thing that has been the solution for us. We're also not to assume that the reason someone is sinning is because they want nothing to do with God. It could be the very thirst for God that's causing them to sin. The third interaction, and those two are the slow ones, so don't worry about the clock, you know, (laughs) deals with spiritual disciplines, and it's given to us in, in, again, Mark chapter 2 and verse 18. Notice the question that's asked of Jesus here, again, by the religious people. It says that the disciples of John and the Pharisees, they come to Jesus and they ask him, used to fast. And so they came unto him and they said, why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? And Jesus said to them, can the children of the bridegroom or bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they can't fast, but the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then shall they fast in those days. And so the third uh, interaction has to do with spiritual disciplines. Again, the first with the forgiveness of sins, how that's accomplished. The second with who God chooses to associate with, sinners. And now the third with spiritual disciplines. And again, the contrast between the religious concept of spiritual disciplines. Do you fast? Do you pray? Do you read? Did you have morning devotions? Did you go to church this week? The religious aspect of it and the relationship aspect of spiritual disciplines. See, the violation that the religious people red flag, you know, or flag on the play, you know, for Jesus. The violation is that he wasn't fulfilling the obligation, the devotion, the ritual that the Pharisees and the disciples of John had established as right if you want to have a relationship with God. If you want to be right with God, you better fast once a week. If you want to have a relationship with God, you better be in prayer constantly. How can you say you have a relationship with God if you're not in prayer? And what Jesus says to them is he says, look, there's a time for that. But if we're going to have reality in our relationship, there's also a time not to have that. If I wake up my wife in the middle of the night at 3 a.m., I shake her awake. Hey, honey, I want to have a conversation. (laughs) If we're going to have a relationship, how are you going to say we have a relationship if we don't have a conversation? And she might kick me and say, I love you, but this is not the time for that. 
And essentially what Jesus is saying here is that you guys have turned your rituals into such a thing that there's no interaction, there's no connection with God in it. You're doing the motions, but you're not touching anything. Nothing's happening. The rituals, prayer, fasting, even Bible reading, devotional times, those things are not obligational requirements, but listen, rather they are outlets and instruments. And they're things that have been given to us by God and they're intended to be used when they're needed. They are not union dues. My prayer time is not union dues. Oh God, this is a horrible situation that I'm in, but I have not paid my dues this week. I haven't prayed at all, so I do not feel like I could come to you in this situation. No, 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 it doesn't work that way. There will be seasons when we fast and pray because we need it and we sense it and it's pressed upon us. And there are seasons when we don't. And we're not closer to God or further away in one than the other because of it. And what we learn about a relationship with God in this is that the spiritual disciplines are ours to be used freely or not used freely according as relationship dictates, not religion. The fourth violation, the fourth issue, deals with laws and principles and regulations. The law of Moses specifically. It's in Mark chapter 2, verses 23 through 28. And it's the classic passage where Jesus and his disciples are walking through a cornfield on a Sabbath day and they're picking the heads of wheat and they're shucking the chaff and eating with unclean hands. And the Pharisees look on and they go, oh my word. Do you see what that rabbi is doing? He is wearing cutoffs and yoga pants in church. <laughs> Do you see what that guy is doing? No, he wasn't. Jesus wouldn't wear, he would wear biker's pants maybe, not, you know. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Can you believe what he is doing? The violation is that he was, in their mind, he was desecrating or violating Sabbath work principles. The custom or the tradition was that you do not harvest or work on the Sabbath day. And Jesus was breaking that very uh, clearly. He was harvesting um, by doing it. And, and their tradition is that the Sabbath, I mean, they wore Fitbits. Do you realize on the Sabbath day in Israel, you weren't allowed to walk more than 100 steps. And so you'd have your Fitbit on and it was connected to Google and everybody knew how many steps you had taken. And if you took that 100 step, you were in violation of the Sabbath. Now, they found ways around that. Do you know what they would do? Is that they would tie rope between their houses and as long as they were holding the rope, it was legally only counted as one step. You can take as many steps as long as you're holding the same rope, but once you let go, then you have to count every successive step after that. Now, now, now catch the irony in all of this. Because... The thing that God had designed as a gift to them to enjoy their relationship with him, they had found so many ways around doing what they thought God wanted them to do on that day that they had actually had to hide from God on the Sabbath day in order to enjoy it. I mean, it's amazing the irony in the whole thing. And so Jesus violates it here. And, and so they come to him and they confront him and they say, why are your disciples doing this? And Jesus answers their violation, their court case, 
by drawing up scripture from the Old Testament. And I love what he does here. He says, have you never read what David did when he was hungry and those that were with him? How they went to the high priest and they took the showbread, which was not legal. It was, it was clearly against the law for a common person to eat the showbread that was consecrated in the temple. And David ate it and those that were with him, and David was justified in breaking the law. Now, here's why that passage and Jesus bringing that up is so amazing. Because Jesus was not violating the Sabbath by eating the corn, okay? That was not a breaking of the law. He was breaking their tradition, but he wasn't breaking the law, okay? There's nothing in the law of Moses that says you can't pick up a raspberry, pull it off the bush, and eat it because it's the Sabbath day. So that was not a breaking of the law. What David did was a clear violation of the law. And Jesus says David was justified in doing that. See, their error, the Pharisees, the religious people's error, was that man, listen, man exists to serve the law. And what Jesus corrects them with is by saying, listen, no, the law exists to serve man. The man, Jesus answers at the end of the passage, was not created for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was created for man. You guys have gotten this all backwards. You've flipped it around in your religion. You've seen it, but you've misinterpreted it. It's not what you think it is. The law is not how we're brought close to God. The law is given by God to serve us, to help us to know how life is supposed to work. We're not saved by the keeping of the law. I'm not a servant of the law, but the law is given for my benefit. You say, well, what does that mean then? That I can just live lawlessly like David and violate the law and be justified? That's foolishness. I I talked to a young man recently who told me that he can do whatever he wants because he's saved. I can do whatever I want because I'm saved. And I looked at him and I said, no, you're not saved. I said, you might be able to do whatever you want, but you're not saved. Because if that's your attitude, you have just let it out of your own mouth that you have no relationship with God at all. Can you imagine me go to my wife? (laughs) I can be with whoever I want because I'm married. (laughs) You go, wait, what? (laughs) You know. Listen, David and his men, catch this. David and his men were not out carousing at night and saying, oh, watch this. We're going to go swindle the priest out of the showbread. (laughs) It's going to be great. We're going to spray paint on the altar while we're there. You know, that wasn't the idea. David had a legitimate need. He was hungry and needed bread desperately. And God was happy to supply bread that was set aside for another cause. Jesus saying, you guys are, you've got it all backwards. You got it all wrong. The fifth and final deals with basic human empathy. And I, I'm not, I'll just very quickly summarize it because I don't want to go long today. But it's in the first five verses of Mark, uh, Mark 3. And it's the man with the withered hand. And he was a setup. He was a plant. They found this crippled man and they put him in a synagogue and they knew Jesus was going to be there. And they wanted to bait Jesus to see if he would heal on the Sabbath day, which again was a violation of their, uh, their code. And so they bring this man in, and Jesus, when he saw it, he recognized what was going on there. It actually says that he got angry. It's one of the few times that you see Jesus displaying the emotion of anger in the Bible. And the reason was because these guys were so set on preserving their religious code 
and keeping people bound under its yoke that they were willing to leverage the suffering of a crippled man in order to entrap Jesus who they knew would have compassion and who would heal this man. And the outcome of the whole thing is that religion, to, to have religion or to hold religion and put it over human need or over human relationship with God is not only to miss the mark, but is actually to create a barrier and bring opposition to God. The summation is this, is that religion and relationship are not only different, but they're diametrically opposed. They're actually conflicting with one another. When Paul says in Galatians 5 to hold on in the liberty, he makes a contrast and he says, if you are circumcised, if you give yourself back to religion, then you have cut yourself off from relationship. The two things do not go hand in hand. And when the preservation of my religious tradition or ideal is more important than a relationship with God or bringing people into a relationship with God or making a relationship with God accessible to people, I'm making God angry because God wants relationship with people. Jesus ordained 12, listen, that they should be what? With him. That was primary. He didn't call them to build an army. He didn't call them to fulfill his purpose. He didn't call them to build a religion or a new set of rituals or to bring an adjustment to Israel. God didn't make man because he needed servants or helpers. He made us for relationship. And it's our greatest need, and it's what he's called us into. And it's out of that, listen, guys, disciples, followers, it's out of that that everything else flows. And to miss that makes everything else religion, period. It's relationship. That's what he has called us into. The right relationship unlocks things in us that otherwise would be dormant or dead, just like C.S. Lewis said of his friend that died. And when you and I find ourselves in a right relationship with God, he's the one that brings out in us things that we didn't even know that were there or things that otherwise would be completely dormant. He's what makes light reflect off of us in a beautiful way and makes it a prism on the wall that is attractive to others and that is an enjoyment to ourselves. It's relationship. That's what God wants with us. And here's the amazing thing is that he wants it. He's not interested in our religion. He's not interested in us trying to earn our way into his favor. He ignores it. He's not interested in our rituals. Oh, Lord, I fasted. I prayed. I did what I thought you wanted me to do. Now, Lord, you answer me. He's not interested. That's not relationship. If I had that kind of thing with my wife, I'd wish I wasn't married. He wants intimacy. He wants interaction. And he's made the way for it. He's provided for it. Relationship is discipleship. Religion is death. May the Lord give us relationship. May we have the yoke of knowing him. And may we hold on to the freedom that that relationship brings. Amen? Amen. Amen. Amen.